Welcome to another episode of On the Couch with myself, Henry Jennings from Marcus Today. And today I'm really lucky to be speaking to the boss, Marcus Padley. So welcome, Marcus. Really looking forward to our chat today. And we're taking questions from members. So it's going to be a really interesting talk. Uh, thanks, Henry. It's hardly luck. You've paid me $50. So, As they say, a check is in the post. Yeah. Um, and, and this episode, we're going to go through a whole range of questions that you've actually asked us and asked Marcus in particular on so many things in the market, which hopefully people will find interesting. I'm sure they will. Before we kick off, though, I just must remind people that it is general advice only. So please do your own research, contact your own financial advisor, etc., about any of the things we do discuss in this podcast. So Marcus, this is like mastermind. This is going to be uh, a bit like, um, actually, it could be like hard quiz, couldn't it? <laughs> yeah, hard, hard. <laughs> I, could get, um, I could get as rude as Tom Gleason is, but I won't. Um, so let's kick things off. First question number one from Albie. I'm only interested in income, he writes. Where do I find that in the newsletter? Uh, well done, Albie. Uh, a lot of our members are interested in income alone i'll have to tell you and i think we we've been talking to a marketing company recently and we've done a terrible job i think of making our content clear to especially new members where you can get bits uh, and it will become clear soon we are going to start an income section which is going to cater specifically for members looking to earn income most most of them, uh, most of members who are looking to do that are in retirement, but we're going to have, we do have an income portfolio. You'll find it on the portfolios tab at the top of the newsletter. But again, we're going to start a section specifically for income focused people. And the portfolio we run, we do have an SMA, which is a fund you can put money into. And that's been run by Ben over the last year and it's outperformed by a significant amount. Uh, I think it is 10% over six months, 6% over 12 months, including the yield, and the yield's about 6% plus franking. So uh, you can have a look at that portfolio. No, you, that, that's our newsletter portfolios on the portfolio tab, uh, but it is based on similar sort of stocks to the SMA. So have a look at the portfolios tab, Albie. Big shout out really to Ben, who has done a fantastic job with that, I have to say. Yes, so, he has. Uh, he, uh, ben, by the way, for those listening, is the fund manager on the income SMA. And uh, and I think it's also to do with the way the market's fallen over, that it doesn't have a lot of high PE textile stocks in it. It has a lot of value-based stocks, so it's been outperforming quite significantly in the last eight months or so. I guess one thing before we go on, uh, just... You know, today we saw absolute carnage in the banking sector, didn't we? It was it was quite extraordinary. Westpac was down six percent. Bendigo was down seven point one percent. It was pretty um, pretty nasty out there. I, I have to say, you uh, picked it like the proverbial, as they say, because we both were writing about the as whether it was as good as it gets in the banking sector, whether we had seen the top, and certainly today uh, we have seen. Maybe, um, maybe that coming to fruition. But anyway, we, we shall see. I'm going to keep going. So question number two, and this is from Lynette. What are the main things to look at in the overnight table, the one we have in the pre-market? Or what do you look at first? Is, is it the Dow? Is it the NASDAQ? Is it uh, gold, iron ore? What's your go-to thing first off in the mornings? 
Uh, well, it obviously varies day to day, but uh, or theme to theme. And at the moment, uh, one of the first things I'd look at is the NASDAQ because that's leading the current volatility. I'd also look at the futures, of course, to see where our market is likely to open up or down. Uh, I will always go to the iron ore price as well and what BHP and Rio did in the overseas markets. Then I'd go to metal prices and look particularly at copper and nickel, see what those are doing and the oil price. But for us, it's it's mostly the commodity prices that are going to move the market first thing. And you do want to know what the resources are going to do because that's a large part of our market. And it is driven by commodity prices, which are all priced overseas. So uh, the, the main thing would be uh, just looking at what the Dow Jones did and um, what the futures have done. Uh, the reason, by the way, you look at the Dow Jones is the Dow Jones is a terrible index. It's only 30 stocks. It's not market cap weighted either. It's price weighted. It's a terribly uh, inaccurate representation of what the market's doing. But the reason people look at it is the price of the Dow Jones is 10 times what the price of the S&P. So when the Dow Jones moves 220 points, you get a better feel for the market than the S&P moving 20 points. So people use the Dow Jones, but uh, uh, you, you re I'm really just looking at the futures and what commodities did every morning. I'd also look at Bitcoin for a bit of a laugh because it is a barometer of irrational exuberance. And if there's a big correction in that, you can pretty much guarantee uh, the te tech or speculative end of our market or all markets is uh, struggling a bit sentiment wise. Now, talking Bitcoin, I could be completely wrong here, but I'm sure I heard on CNBC, who are doing a thing on crypto, there are 19,500 cryptocurrencies. God, are there? Which, seem, which seems absolutely ridiculous, considering it's very hard to transact in any of them. Well, I was very taken by that podcast you did with the fund manager who was oh, running yeah. a crypto fund. Do you remember his name, Henry? Uh, I don't off the top of my head. Okay. Nice, nice guy. Uh, but he was talking about 98% of the crypto space being run by predators rather than people who are trying to help you uh, or trying to facilitate things. And I, I would say that's the big problem with crypto is any price that moves a lot, you will find predators set up platforms to accommodate and start marketing like mad. And it's as good as handing your money to a criminal, as far as I can see. Uh, but I was also taken by the idea that he said that there is a legitimate side to crypto as a reserve currency, because if the Federal Reserve are going to go and print 40% more US dollars just because the financial markets get themselves in a pickle, then what would you prefer? Bitcoin is a reserve currency or one that central banks manipulate. And uh, and that is about the only argument I can see for having a uh, reserve currency based on crypto because the supply demand situation is finite, not uh, in the hands of central banks. But there you go. Mm. OK, well, let's get back to stocks, because this this is a question that's cropped up a number of times from a number of people, and it concerns price targets. One member asked whether price targets are worth the paper they are written on. And we had a follow-up, a much longer question as well about price targets as well, about analysts and how they can be so different in their price targets. And I guess we've seen it in things like um, the buy now, pay later sector with the Shore analyst who we had on this uh, podcast some years ago, one of our most popular podcasts. So price targets, are they worthwhile? And how and why do we have such a variance 
in those price targets from different brokers? Uh, because of different assumptions, even though they might be working off the same earnings number and they might even be using the same discount rate because ultimately it's about trying to assess fair value in 12 months time, which is usually a discount cash flow uh, calculation. So brokers may be using different discount rates, but particularly in our market with resources, they will all be using different assumptions for the underlying commodity price, be that iron or coal, copper, whatever it is. And there are a lot of resources stocks. And because those assumptions vary so much, the target prices vary so much. The other thing I would say about target prices as well is uh, two other inaccuracies. One is, I remember when Roger Montgomery wrote his book, Value.Able, and I think chapter 11 described how to come up with an intrinsic value. And I back-engineered some of his calculations on an Excel spreadsheet and kept playing with assumptions until I got the exact intrinsic values that he was coming up with on his scaffold uh, a piece of software, which as far as I know, doesn't exist anymore. And so I worked out what his uh, constants were and I started to fiddle with those. And it worked. I worked out that if you move an intrinsic value uh, assumption or, or the constant that you used by whatever it was, 0 0.1, and the, and the constant was, was pulled out of your bottom anyway. Uh, <laughs> and if you moved it by 0 0.1, the price of BHP, the intrinsic value of BHP would move by $5. And it just made me realize these intrinsic value calculations are, are, are simply, um, they're, they're not pointless, uh, but they are uh, very rubbery. And having worked backwards I, I had set up an excel spreadsheet for every stock to work out its intrinsic value and then i realized reuters had intrinsic values and they were all pretty much around the same as the one i was calculating every day anyway and so i just decided well i'll just use a, a database like reuters so someone like reuters will give you an approximate they're all approximate intrinsic value but i would say to you uh, the target price are based on intrinsic value which are based on again uh, assumptions on constants and industries and and they're they're uh, inaccurate so there's also some inaccuracy and then the last inaccuracy in target prices is brokers research uh, 90 percent of it is a marketing material not independent research done independently in order to benefit you as a, a personal investor and it's uh, by the time you read a piece of research if it has got anything monumental in it or is thematic or new it will have been pushed around the institutional shareholders uh, the institutional clients of the broker already and so when you see bits of research suddenly appearing and there are some websites that collect all the broker research i wonder why the brokers let these these uh, people have their research it's because of course this is the oldest game in the funds management world or the broking world is buy something in other words do a bit of research tell every client what you found out and then go and tell all the bunnies about it which is us uh, so when you see a piece of published research if it has got any value in it it will have been marketed already around a much larger client base so uh, target prices uh, also, sorry, a bit of a distraction, there, but target prices are partly marketing. If you list a company and write a piece of research about it, and it's a small company, there'll be one broker and the target price will be 30% above the current share price. 
because that's their job. So that's why target prices are tend to be uh, uh, misleading a fantasy, especially on small companies with one broker, because they've, they've got a corporate duty to promote the price. And if they promote the price, the company can raise capital more easily. And that's why the stock market exists. Um, back in my Macquarie Bank days, I famously told the head of research that I thought that research was like nuclear weapons. You only have them because everybody else has got them. They're very expensive. They're very dangerous and no one ever uses it anyway. <laughs> Needless to say. And, and if they don't work, you, you uh, pass them <laughs> off to another company. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And if they're no good, if the analyst is no good, it's like uranium. If yeah. it's <laughs> depleted, you, you hand it off to Goldman Sachs. <laughs> <laughs> Needless to say, I wasn't actually on the re research Christmas invite for their, no. uh, for their due that year. No. But anyway, I digress. Now, next question. Um, if you're young, say under 40, and that is, that is young compared to you and I, and have some equity in your home, should you use that equity to invest in shares? No. <laughs> okay, well, that's easy. There you go, Lyle. That's a very easy one. No. Yeah, sorry, sorry, Lyle, but you don't have equity in your home. What you've got is a lack of debt. Uh, so it, the, the question is, would you borrow money to invest in shares? And you will find most of our experienced members will tell you that is a recipe for disaster. It, it, leveraging to buy shares, which is effectively what borrowing off your house is. Leveraging to buy shares is a geared into the equity market. Are you that confident the equity market's going to go up? If you are, fine. Uh, if you're not, wouldn't uh, wouldn't bother the returns from property and uh, the equity market even though i think it's a bit of a lie are supposed to both be nine percent per annum so it's a bit of a nil-sum game except you're paying interest on top of that so uh probably not worth it right well that's a nice easy one lyle there you go there's the answer to that question now from Malcolm, what's the story with trading after 4 p.m has the market closes at 4 p.m., but then we have the 4.10 match out, which I used to call the chocolate wheel because anything could happen. Uh, can you run through sort of what happens at 4.10? Yes, the market uh, shuts briefly at 4 o'clock, and then people can still enter orders in for 10 minutes, although they won't trade. So if there's a, a bid is higher than an offer, it won't trade, but people can load orders in. It was sort of guessing it was there because a lot of brokers had a lot of sorting out to do at the end of the day. Uh, brokers have orders, say they wanted to buy 100,000 uh, XYZ over the day. And at the end of the day, they've only done 98,000. It's their sort of last moment to finish off. I'm sure that's why the auction doesn't, no, that's not why the auction exists. But when you're a broker, that's what you'd use it for. It's like, I've got the last 10,000 to do. I'll just bring it in the uh, auction at the end of the day. And what happens is all the bids and all the offers, just like uh, as, as it runs all day, but they all just match off at the end of the day uh, to whatever the mean price is for the volume that's been done. And you get a final crossing at 4.10. So the market's actually shut at 4 and then there's this final crossing at 4.10. So if you as a, an investor are thinking, damn it, I should have sold 
you still can, and the market's shut at four o'clock, you still can as long as you put your order in before 4.10. And a lot of people will put in orders at silly, what look like silly prices. So if the price is $1 to 101, they'll put their stock in to sell at five cents just to make sure it gets done on the day. So there's this uh, auction at the end of the day. I think people, most people understand that. I do remember when they brought it in initially. God knows when it was. I think it was back in the 90s. And one of the reasons they brought it in was to stop people ramping up and down share prices at the close on very little volume. So it allowed oh, uh, an go. algo to actually fix the price rather than uh, some of the dubious practices, shall we say, that some of the brokers used to indulge in back in the dubious good old days. practices, Henry? What, like touching up? small mining stocks at the end of the day you can do that you can you can still do that but the the uh, the asx will look very unkindly if you do it on one share if you do it on a million shares that's your own stupidity uh, that that is the reasoning that they have so if you do anything with size you can get away with it which still uh, is probably the case it used to be the case back in the the dubious 90s that's yeah but, sure. it, but it is on it is on record that there are, have been a number of brokers i think one actually went to prison for touching up share price at the oh, end yeah. of the day when the asx was trying to make an example of it yeah there, there are and we uh it's uh in the in the bad old days in Brokingland, we uh we had an operator that did it and he got fined and we got fined very heavily and the institution uh behind it was uh, was in serious trouble because they gave the instructions and you never argue with your client, do you? Anyway. Uh, and, and this is actually uh, window dressing as well, that you would get orders as a broker on the last day of the month to buy a stock or sell uh, quite a large line of stock or sell quite a large line of stock. And uh, the idea for the fund manager was if they hold the stock already, they want it to close as high a price as possible. So their quarterly report looks great. Uh, or if they didn't hold it, it, or they were underweight, but they did hold it, they'd sell it in order to get the price down, which gives them better relative performance because they're underweight. Well, there's stuff like that used to go on. Uh, of course, no fund manager will ever admit to it, but the volume always picked up on the last day in the last half an hour. Funny old world, isn't it? <laughs> Especially at quarter ends. Um, now, moving swiftly along. Uh, we have a question from Paul. He said he understands what buy, hold and sell are. But what is accumulate? Something that comes up a lot on uh, when I do the call with Koshi is that uh, there's the cop out call, which is the accumulate or the nibble. I call it the nibble. Um, what, what, is, what does accumulate mean in the big scheme of things? Uh, it's just a bit of rubbish, Henry. I mean, things either <laughs> things either a buy or a sell, isn't it? Uh, what uh, individual investors will get caught up in is reading research, which is targeted at institutional fund managers. Institutional fund managers are only interested in relative performance, not actual performance. So I once went to lunch with a fund manager who turned up late. He was the gold analyst at National Mutual. He turned up late and he said, and he, he said, we're, we're drinking champagne and ordered champagne. And he just had his salary review and he had destroyed millions 
trading not trading but investing on in gold stocks that year he had been a geologist a gold geologist the year before he'd come out of the industry into broking and thought in his first year he's just lost so much money in gold stocks that uh, he was going to get sacked and he was called in and given a bonus because he had outperformed <laughs> it staggered him that his utter lack of value in holding these gold stocks that went down but he had actually outperformed because he'd picked better bad gold stocks than the other at the other people and uh, that is a, an example of the fact that the whole of the finance industry moves on relative performance whereas individual investors move on actual performance and on that basis a lot of the research isn't written for individual investors it's written for actual for institutional investors and so the recommendations are relative recommendations that's why you get recommendations that don't say buy they say outperform and they don't say sell they say underperform and if they and you will get also ones that say neutral which says you shouldn't be over or underweight this one because it's too dangerous and accumulate is probably just one of the derivatives of crappy recommendations not really aimed at an individual uh I, I don't know why anyone would put an accumulate on a on a stock it's it's uh presumably a soft buy in other words i'm i hate i hate the word conviction buy it's someone who is the opposite of convicted i'm accumulate which means don't blame me for it when if when you buy it and it doesn't go up I'm, i must admit when i use the nibble on the call it tends to be because i like the stock i like the story i just don't like paying the dumb price that's at the moment so i'm happy to wait and see but i guess uh, that's that's just me with my nibble um, I, think, I, I think the um answer is in the eye of the listener or the ear of the listener isn't it nibble what's yeah. henry trying to say with nibble so, <laughs> so what's an analyst trying to say with accumulate well i know what he's trying to say he's saying um i don't bloody know but you know uh, we're we're uh, we're brokers to the company you know <laughs> it's a sell but we're brokers to the company or whatever all right well following on from that then in in terms of who should we believe out there i mean if we if we can't believe the research obviously marcus today we can believe because um it's a fantastic trusted source but who else out there who else are the good guys let's not get defamatory about the bad guys but who else out there do you think oh i listen to the guys they're smart they, they know what they're talking about the uh the good guys i i think i like to think of marcus today as uh uh, being in your corner, you're a member, you're an investor, you're insecure about, uh, do I know what I'm doing? Uh, you've got a responsibility to yourself, your self-managed super fund, possibly your partner, possibly other people like your, your kids. And uh, you want people in your corner uh, helping you. And I see that as Marcus today's role. So if you just think about that, uh, if you're in a boxing match, you, you you as a, an individual investor will have a pretty keen idea whether the person that you're trying to deal with on the screen or uh, on a platform or in financial advice, whether they're in your corner telling you how to fight to the, or helping you fight the fight or they're in the ring fighting you. <laughs> so uh, you assess, I don't want to get defamatory, but you assess uh, what I, I know amongst the newsletters, uh, which ones are 
have got empathy with their their customers and which ones are trying to root their customers. Uh, and I think most of you are smart enough to pick up. Uh, uh, what if it looks like a if it looks like someone who's trying to put their hand in your back pocket? Yeah, they probably are. And and uh, so the good guys are the ones that aren't. Now, one of the most maligned good guys, I think, of financial planners, most financial planners have been tainted or tarred with the brush of the financial planning industry, which had institutional bad uh, practice, which uh, has been clearly uh, picked up by the Royal Commission over the years, and AMP would be smack in line for that. And the whole financial planning industry has been tarred with that brush. I can tell you, most financial planners are individuals or a couple of in, couple of partners who really care about their clients, know what they're talking about, and care deeply uh, that their clients succeed, and they are definitely in your corner. So I would say to you, uh, one, or one of the things I uh, am saddest about from the Royal Commission is that these uh, people, most of whom are local as well, most of whom will deal with people who become their friends, are automatically maligned as uh, being in the ring rather than in your corner. So I would say um, you, you play it by ear, but most financial planners, especially small businesses in your locality, are generally very caring because they can't afford not to be because they have to walk past you whilst you're having a coffee in the street. So uh, I would say some of, you'll find some real good guys amongst that lot. That is, um, that is a very good point. That Now, Jeremy asks, how can I get in on IPOs and placements that the institutions get from brokers? Right. Well, one of the worst rorts in the industry is these new accelerated rights issues where brokers will raise money for a company. Uh, they will announce a, an issue of shares 10% below the current share price, and they will ring around all their institutional clients, hand the stock to them, and the next morning when they announce that the stock has been placed with these institutions, many of whom weren't shareholders, the shareholders, the loyal shareholders who have been holding the stock and supporting the stock and uh, trying to help the company um, will find that their share price is down 10% the next day and the institutions have walked away uh, with a transfer of value from individual investors to institutional investors. And it's a, a massive rort. Now, how do you get involved in those? I'm afraid you can't. The industry is going to continue to do you over uh, with those placements unless you are a wholesale client, which means you have to jump through hoops like having two and a half million dollars worth of assets or you're, you're buying at least $500,000 worth of stock. And you have to be on a phone list, which means you have to be registered as a sophisticated investor with the broker that happens to be doing the placement. And I can tell you for nothing, they ain't going to bother ringing you because they're going to place it with uh, the big institutions vastly more easily than listening to you witter on for 20 minutes about why should I take this because it's a big bet, whereas they could place the whole thing in one phone call with one institution. So you're not going to get in on those accelerated rights issues, which is one of the most painful rorts in the market. As far as, uh, or you can try by going on the uh, sophisticated investor list, you, you ring your broker if you've got one, you ring your broker and you sign yourself up as a sophisticated investor. What is it? Section 603 form or something, Henry? Um, 718. 
718, there you go, uh, and you get on their list and they are supposed to ring you when they've got a placement that could be taken by a wholesale investor. Uh, and, and if they do, don't take it <laughs> because it's the golden rule of placements is if it's any good, you won't get offered it. And if you get offered it, you don't want it because they can't place it anywhere else. So why are they ringing a, a doctor in Wagga Wagga to get rid of this stock? Uh, you'd have to be a really good personal friend of the broker or him owe you a favor. So it's very difficult to get in on decent IPOs on wholesale uh, placements and on uh, accelerated rights issues. It's something that I would just give away as one of the uh, inequities of the equity market. Um, and uh, it's it, your future does not, your, your future happiness, financial happiness does not rely on uh, taking that sort of stuff. Your, your, uh, there are vastly more important financial decisions than getting a tiny edge through placements and IPOs. The other thing I guess uh, it's worth noting is certainly when there's lots of these around, lots of placements around, uh, the good clients, I'm using my bunny ears for the good clients, who get these placements tend to be flippers. They tend to take the stock and then flip it and move on to the next one because they only have a certain amount of capital at their, their disposal. So frequently, you actually see the stock prices collapse to the same price as they got the stock at, or even lower in some cases when they start panicking on their flipping. So it is possible sometimes, if you're really dead keen, to be in the market and actually get them at the same price as the instos or even lower. Uh, there are some, uh, if you were lucky enough to get the zip placement, for instance, uh, when they uh, did that, I think it was around $1.86 or something, not that long ago. You were pretty lucky, actually, that you missed out completely on that one with the stock trading at around 60 cents now. So um, sometimes you don't want to be part of it, as Marcus says. Now, getting a little more specific, we're going to have a few more questions before we wrap up the hard quiz. Um, so we're going to make them a little bit harder, the last few questions. This comes from Fiona. What will be your trigger to buy the market again? Told you it was hard. Uh, no, that's that's quite easy. Uh, we, we've or we we have Henry developed quite a good feel, and I think certain investors are good at certain things. I think we have developed quite a good feel for the market to a point whereby I would be fairly confident now if I was a rich civilian to uh, probably if I really wanted to play golf and not look at my screens, I would probably just try and time the market. I'd sit in a big fund or an ETF or something and uh, get a compound compounding return out of the equity market, which might be 9% per annum plus a bit of income. And occasionally you just need to time the market. Uh, which means avoiding every year there's a 5%, 10% correction. Every three years there's a 15 to 25% correction. Every uh, 10 years there's a 50% correction. And you just need to try and time. If you're smart and engaged, you might try and time the one correction a year or the, the big one every three years or the massive one every 10 years. So I would probably sit and uh, do that market timing thing and play golf the rest of the time. So I may only have to make two decisions a year. 
but uh, I feel I've got quite good at doing that and uh, there, there's a lot of elements to it, but one of the main ones is something I've written about a few times, and it's this is a bit of a joke article. People take it seriously and criticize me for, for being a disciple of this uh, idea, but it's that Collins class rule, which is a silly story, but the point it makes is this was a guy who was in a nuclear submarine and <laughs> an Australian nuclear submarine. And you can imagine how busy he was. Uh, I don't remember Australia ever shooting a <laughs> nuclear missile at anybody out of a submarine. So he was on the, he was a weapons officer and he had nothing to do. So what he used to do was when the, when they surfaced, he would download price data to Metastock and he'd spend his time under, underwater going through Metastock looking for systems that worked. And anyone who's used Metastock and stuff will know you do all this backtesting. He was backtesting and backtesting everything. And he found this little edge, which was on breakout stocks. And he could consistently make money trading very short term. It's not something any of you would like to do because it's so intense and short term. But he could, he could reliably make money on uh, short term uh, breakouts. And... Uh, then the market tipped over many years ago, probably in the 90s, the market tipped over and it just blew his whole system. And he realized he needed to have a filter for the whole market. And the filter he, dis he discovered or engineered was if Wall Street fell 3% in a day, the numbers are probably different now. He's, you know, I'm sure he's not doing it anymore. It would just be too exhausting to do that for a long period of time. But if the market fell 3%, US market fell 3% in a day, he would sell half of whatever positions he had. And if it fell another 3%, uh, he would they would he would cash out completely now what i what that uh, says is not that that's a golden rule but corrections start fast and i think one of the things people are terrible at is selling and i think you just need something that triggers you and uh, if i was to talk about one indicator that does trigger uh, me picking a top or picking a bottom is a rapid move and corrections start fast. The bottom also tends to uh, be a bit quicker than the uh, usual trading. And when you see a big night, a big up night as well, that's a good indication that maybe you should uh, have a crack. So I would be timing the market with a number of indicators, depending on what the theme that's running at the time is, and they, they will change all the time. Uh, and uh, but the most obvious thing is a sharp uh, counter trend market move starts a, a new trend. And so that's that's what I would be looking for now. So this little bounce we've had, I don't want to make this podcast topical, but the little bounce we've had in the NASDAQ up 9% in, you know, I think, four days. That's a pretty big move from a bottom. The market never crashes up, you notice. So, uh, but a 9% move fairly quickly. Yeah, that's that's a good reason to get started. And, uh, uh, it, uh, but, you know, vigilance, it'll go wrong. doesn't matter. I'll sell. I wonder if there's going to be an, uh, a new Australian-US-UK submarine alliance rule that we get in in a few years' time. I wonder if we'll be able to adjust the Collins class rule to the 
orcus or whatever they yeah call it. yeah I, I think the orcus is going to fall in a hole God. it's going to sink and never never surface it's going to be one of those movies where it's just yeah. going down and down and the depth gauge is going and anyway so I, uh, I love a good submarine movie i don't know what it is about submarine so do movies. I. god i just oh. love that uh, red october i wish i'd never seen it i could watch it every day i wish i had uh, uh, uh memory loss and i could watch all these films again well luckily that's Very probably good. coming to all of us as we get older i did actually watch hunter killer talking of submarine movies with oh, yeah. uh, jared butler uh, that, yeah. that that's quite fun if you're into uh, sub movies so yes, maybe I've, I've forgotten that one anyway, yeah I, I, I popped up on my netflix so i had a little squiz at that one now marcus i'm gonna finish the hard quiz there you've been very generous with your time it's been great okay. but um and we've got lots more questions we could do and should do and will do so i think there will be a part two to this podcast but um for the time being marcus thanks very much for coming on the show coming on the couch as always, it's been fun and uh, a wealth of knowledge and uh, experience there for our listeners. And if you do have questions, no matter how dumb they are, there's no such thing as a dumb question. As they say, the only dumb question is the one that doesn't get asked. Then uh, we are here for all your questions. That is um, part of the service, I guess, to some extent. So thanks very much, Marcus. Uh, yes, Henry. Thank I want to just mention before we go that uh, we do have education seminars and uh, this podcast answering questions was born out of uh, a educational feel and the idea that we should be running a uh, stupid questions. There are no stupid questions. Should be running a stupid questions webinar, but a podcast is easier if we've got the questions so i would encourage people sending questions and henry and i could probably do this regularly where we answer stupid questions which aren't stupid um as a part of our educational offering because we're in your corner we're in your corner <laughs> thanks marcus it's been fun thanks henry.